Welcome to the Kotki Ride Home for Thursday, January 27th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, what is up with the drastically different predictions for this weekend's nor'easter? And how is snowfall measured anyways? Plus, the surprisingly long history of the term sus. And sometimes pre-ordering a book does not mean that you'll get it right on the publication date. Like when the shipping container was being transported in sinks to the bottom of the ocean, for example. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. So here in New York City, we are bracing for a big snowstorm this weekend. Or maybe not. Current forecasts put us somewhere between 2 inches and 20 inches of snowfall, which is, you know, a pretty big difference. The big nor'easter will be affecting the entire northeast coast of the United States, but apparently untangling exactly how badly it will affect different areas is proving a little complicated. Quoting Gizmodo, who spoke with Nelson Vaz, a meteorologist with the National Weather Service's New York office, The main source of energy is a series of storms that will crash into the Pacific Northwest on Thursday. They will ride the jet stream across the U.S., take a turn down to the southeast before emerging over the Atlantic near the Carolinas. There, the systems will spin up into one major storm that will wrap around a cold core, taking on a classic nor'easter comma shape as it rakes the eastern seaboard. Importantly for the forecast, meteorologists are relying on models right now, with few observations of the actual storms in question. Weather balloons and other types of observations launched over the coming days will give meteorologists more concrete data to feed into models and help refine the forecast itself, which is a mix of model information and human understanding of models and local conditions. It is all but certain the nor'easter will intensify rapidly enough to be considered a bomb cyclone. That is, it will see its pressure drop at least 24 millibars in 24 hours. But the exact track is still very much a work in progress. The system still has a long journey across the country, and there's a lot that could happen between now and then to the systems, as well as areas of high and low pressure that will dictate how they combine and move up the East Coast. End quote. Throughout later today and tomorrow, Tomorrow we'll probably get a better idea, as Gizmodo points out, that it's in the 24 to 48 hours before a storm hits that meteorologists can usually give more accurate information about the amount of snowfall in particular. They point to one metric to pay attention to, the 4070 benchmark. The 4070 benchmark, quoting weather.com, means 40 degrees north latitude and 70 degrees west longitude. In general, when cold air is available over the northeast, a low tracking through this general point on the globe is in the sweet spot for delivering a thumping snowstorm to at least parts of the northeast. End quote. But the different models out there are still disagreeing on if the storm will pass through the 4070 benchmark or be further or closer to the shore. And here's a bigger question. Even if they could say with certainty that New York City is getting 20 inches of snow on Saturday, what does that mean practically, and how is that measured? Well, fortunately, Penn State Meteorology and Atmospheric Science Associate Teaching Professor Bill Syrett was ready for that question with an incredibly well-timed article in The Conversation this morning. Actually, I think this was republished from a 2015 article, so really just kudos to The Conversation for knowing what articles people will click on given other news. Anyways, in the U.S., we use a series of guidelines established by the National Weather Service back in 1890 to measure snowfall, and the data is 
gathered by a network of 8,700 volunteers across the nation who send in daily reports about their local weather, not just snow, but also temperature, precipitation, and more. But let's talk about the snow. As you might imagine, based on the times when you may have been told that your town got 12 inches of snow, but then you measure in your backyard and you only have 7, the whole process is a bit more complicated than just sticking a ruler into the ground. An important distinction to be aware of is the difference between snow depth and snowfall. Depth is the sum of individual snowfalls. It's the average depth of accumulated snow in a given location. Though, because of a whole bunch of real-world factors like compression and melting and sublimation, the snow depth never exceeds the sum of all snowfalls. For example, Syret says, two 10.5-inch snowfalls might accumulate to a depth of only 17 inches, as opposed to 21. To get an accurate reading of snow depth, you should try to find somewhere with minimal drifting and take several measurements to average them together. The same thing for measuring snowfall, but additionally in this case you'll want a flat level surface, ideally white so it doesn't absorb much sunlight and remains close to the ambient air temperature. Something like a plank of wood painted white is great. The NWS refers to this as a snowboard. But a lot of factors can still get in the way, like if the snow changes to rain halfway through, and that elusive compression issue. And remember, these measurements are all coming from human volunteers, people who technically have lives beyond measuring snow. They're actually only required to measure once a day. But if they really only do it once a day, they risk having too low of a read because the snow may have compressed in on itself. So instead, it's better to take multiple readings a day and clear that snowboard each time you do, and then add up all the readings at the end of the day to get the total snowfall. But to get accurate comparisons across places and not have a volunteer in one place who only checks once a day versus a volunteer clearing the board every single hour, the NWS says volunteers cannot clear their boards more than four times in 24 hours. And apparently, this leads to controversy every now and then. A while back, a volunteer measured 77 inches of snowfall in New York within a 24-hour span, which would have broken a record. But then the NWS said that he had actually cleared the board too often, and that inflated the daily total. Now, none of this is an exact science, which Syret readily admits to, calling it inherently inexact, which is why some weather stations have begun using sensors to take measurements, but sometimes those malfunction when the snow is too heavy. And all of these caveats and complications are perhaps part of why Gizmodo recommends that people pay attention to more than just the projected snowfall amounts if you're in the potential range of the nor'easter this weekend. Because while there's a big difference between 2 inches and 20 inches of snow, there's also other factors, like wind gusts and temperature, both of which at least have a little more accuracy and are also very important to prepare for. If you have kids, or spend enough time online, you've probably heard the word sus a lot over the last couple of years. It's short for suspicious, and became super common slang when the game Among Us skyrocketed in popularity towards the start of the pandemic. Among Us launched in 2018 as a multiplayer game that takes place on a spaceship. Users playing together are crewmates, but one player is secretly given the role of an imposter, and they try to kill their crewmates while the crewmates complete random tasks around the ship. 
No one, besides the imposter themselves, knows who the imposter is, but meetings can be called for everyone to discuss and guess which one of them might be the imposter. During these meetings, it's common for someone to say that a fellow crewmate was acting sus, or suspicious. The word sus has taken on a whole life of its own far beyond Among Us, but it also had a life of its own long before Among Us entered the world. Yesterday, writer Austin Kleon tweeted an article from Merriam-Webster's Words We're Watching section, which highlights words they're keeping their eye on because it's being used more and more, but which hasn't yet met their criteria for entry into the dictionary. And indeed, if you search sus, S-U-S, on Merriam-Webster's website, you get two entries, neither of which reflect its current usage as a slang term for suspicious. Instead, you get a genus of mammals comprised of most swine, like boars and pigs, as well as an abbreviation for Susanna, as in the story from the Book of Daniel. But if you go over to the Oxford English Dictionary, you get the full lowdown on the word sus and its long history as a word associated with suspicious behavior. The OED has text examples dating back to the 1930s, and Merriam-Webster additionally dug up an entry from Partridge's Concise Dictionary of Slang and Unconventional English, which cites this particular usage as going all the way back to 1925. Now, in fall of 2020, Inverse dug into the not-uncomplicated history of the term. Quoting Inverse, The shortening of suspicious to sus first took place in England and Wales as far back as the 1930s as police jargon. Instead of using it as a descriptor like that person is sus, British cops would use the abbreviation to refer to the discovery of crucial evidence or information as having sussed something out, or going on an investigation as sussing out a situation or person, end quote. Now, another related usage was sus laws, which were the nickname for a stop-and-search law under the United Kingdom's Vagrancy Act. While the Vagrancy Act itself dated back to 1824, the nickname for sus law doesn't appear in writing anywhere until at least the 1930s. Vagrancy acts in the UK and elsewhere were typically used to arrest someone who wasn't technically breaking any other laws, but whom police felt was going enough against social norms or what they deemed acceptable in public. For example, many people in the 19th and 20th centuries who defied gender norms, either in behavior or in their clothing, were arrested under charges of vagrancy. Vagrancy laws were also aimed at sex workers, people experiencing homelessness, and in the post Civil War era in the United States, formerly enslaved people. Inverse explains further, quote, Sus laws gave British law enforcement the power to search and potentially arrest people who they believed were up to no good. Specifically, the cops had to think a person was in violation of the Vagrancy Act of 1824, which only required them to establish that someone was a suspected person with intent to commit an arrestable offense. The practice was found to disproportionately target black and brown people and have little to no impact on crime in London. The discrimination caused tension in communities all throughout England and was a major factor in what sparked the 1981 Brixton riot in London when thousands of protesters clashed with the Metropolitan Police. The policing practice was repealed that same year, however, similar legislation was later enacted, and the effects of sus law are still felt in the British political climate today. End quote. 
But as sometimes happens, the term, consciously or not, was reclaimed, sort of, by some of the same populations most negatively impacted by it. Now, though it's tough to track pre-internet usage, early internet artifacts show the usage of sus by black Americans in particular in forums and across the web. The first Urban Dictionary post goes back to 2003, and Inverse dug up a Tyler the Creator sketch video from 2012 about the word. This is the part of the history of the word that's the least surprising to me. So much of slang that gets picked up online and eventually used throughout mainstream culture has its origins in black communities, usually without acknowledgement and sometimes used incorrectly. Additionally, Merriam-Webster pointed to a 2017 Refinery29 article about dating slang, a year before Among Us launched, that explained sus as the 2017 version of shady, further emphasizing the term's usage in some circles well before its recent Among Us-fueled surge. And now it's on Merriam-Webster's watch list, so it may soon be entering dictionaries officially on this side of the pond in the coming years. So yes, sus is what the kids are saying these days, but like so many slang terms and seemingly new words, it has a much deeper lineage than is often apparent at first. The shipping containers are at it again. Following heavy winds in the mid-Atlantic, a boat called the Madrid Bridge lost 65 of the shipping containers it was carrying. Among the goods lost as sacrifices to the sea gods were two highly anticipated cookbooks, Dinner in One, Exceptional and Easy One-Pan Meals by Melissa Clark, and Turkey and the Wolf, Flavor Trippin' in New Orleans by Mason Hereford. Both books were set to come out soon, but have now been delayed until June and September due to all pre-order copies now residing at the bottom of the ocean. Fortunately, no one was hurt when the boat lost the containers, and both authors are taking it in stride, posting memes and jokes as they announce the unexpected delay in their book releases. I will be curious to see if there are other books we hear about that were lost as well. The Madrid Bridge was en route to New York, the publishing center of the U.S., so it is likely there were a fair few other book orders on board. This is also hardly the first time this has happened in recent years. From backlogs at docks to the Suez Canal blockage, there have been tons of shipping container issues as of late. I know sometime last year I talked about the increasing number of boats losing shipping containers to strong winds as they got over packed to compensate for other shortages and delays. And though it doesn't look like it was ever publicly released, a friend in publishing showed me photos last year of a big order of some of their books having been destroyed when some containers fell off a boat and damaged other ones on board. In this most recent case, in addition to the 65 containers that fell into the Atlantic Ocean, a further 89 were damaged. So, if you ordered something that never arrives, this could be why. I just hope Poseidon is enjoying all the cool books and, I don't know, air fryers and pelotons we keep dropping his way. Well, that is it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotke.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.